If you have your Bibles, will you turn with me, first of all, to the Epistle to the Ephesians? And I would like you to follow along as I read to you one of the most exalted passages with respect to the institution of Christian marriage that has ever been penned, beginning at verse 22 and reading through to verse 33, Ephesians 5, verse 22. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. And now will you turn very quickly to the fifth chapter of Acts, beginning at verse 40. They agreed with the the council of Gamaliel concerning these witnessing disciples. And we read, and to him they agreed. And when they had called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing. They were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple... And in every house, they cease not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Our wonderful Lord, in these golden moments of spiritual privilege that are before us, how we pray that we might have this morning a very unusual sense of thy nearness to us. How we pray that the mundane thoughts that so frequently crowd our minds will be put away. And we pray that we shall listen with intensity and eagerness. And how we pray that the Spirit of God will suit a particular challenge to every one of us. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Traditionally, our message on this day has its theme on mothers. But certainly without for a moment taking anything away from their extremely exalted and beautiful role... I nevertheless feel that this is a time in history uh, for us to talk not only about the necessity of Christian mothers, but the necessity of the whole family for Christ, the Christian home. A very recent article in U.S. News and World Report for April 16, 1973, is entitled, Is the American Family in Danger? 
The heading reads, Lifestyles of today's young people are bringing not only change, but also in some cases severe strain to family life as their parents knew it. Many experts wonder if the traditional family concept can survive in this country. The article goes on to say that profound and dramatic changes are underway in American family life and that most young adults are heading to the altar in the traditional way before setting up housekeeping. However, others, disillusioned with conventional marriage, are experimenting with ways of life that are vastly different from those of their parents. Involved in either case, is a strong questioning of the values that have shaped life in Western civilization for centuries. Lifelong commitments, parental responsibility, distinct roles for man and wife. The social scientists are pointing out that these young people are coming of age at a time when the extended family, for the most part, has already broken up. The grandparents have retired to Florida, the aunts and uncles have moved away, the cousins are in college. Now a social scientists tell us that the lifestyles of many young couples are bringing changes to the so-called nuclear family. That's the family that's composed of father, mother, children. This ferment has convinced some of the social scientists that the death of the family is at hand. Ferdinand Lundberg, the author of The Coming World Transformation, says the family is near the point of complete extinction. Many others insist, however, that family life is not dying but merely adapting itself to the changes of the 20th century. Alvin Toffler, in his well-known book Future Shock, concludes that serial marriage, a pattern of successive uh, temporary unions is the mainstream marriage pattern of tomorrow. As you know and I know, a drive is now underway to make divorce easier than it is. Eight states have enacted no-fault divorce laws which make irreconcilable differences the ground for terminating and ending a marriage. Marriage is becoming increasingly a tentative arrangement, often an extremely transitory one. Child psychologists cite the disproportionate number of confused delinquents, usually originating, they tell us, from homes where the father is absent or where both parents work. Their fear is that the rising tide of divorces will be reflected in the coming years in the nation's juvenile courts. Dr. Amitai Etzioni of Columbia University, a sociologist, says family life has reached a turning point. It is not falling apart at the seams, but certainly it now has serious problems some new positive definitions of what marriage is all about are needed in the 1970s. According to an interesting article in the Tulsa Daily World for December of 1967, the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, with the support of the 
Carnegie Foundation has been engaged in an in-depth study of what the world will be like in the year 2000 A.D. Actually, what they foresee is an age of scientific humanism. Their forecasts, they tell us, are grounded in history. In other words, what has been the pattern of the past? Economics, how much will it cost? Psychology, how do people react to new kinds of stress? And sociology, how do human organizations and activities change? Actually, the World Academy foresees a future of horrors. Number one, the end of democratic government as people increasingly lose interest and leave decisions to an intellectual technological elite. Secondly, the destruction of traditional marriage and family ties by birth control and artificial insemination. Number three, the absolute and complete control of man's personality and behavior by electronic devices and drugs advocated, as you know, by B.F. Skinner. Number four, an overemphasis on technological education with accompanying loss of human values. But the most startling forecast has to do with the decline of the family. Indeed, they predict that the home as we know it will not exist except for couples designated because of their superiority to breed children. One thing is undeniable, and that is when the home collapses, the nation is doomed. We are in the midst of a terrifying moral sag. Unfortunately, we're so much a part of it that we don't realize how serious it is. And what this means is that our culture is changing. Unfortunately, it is going into disintegration. The distinguished journalist of over 60 years, Arthur Crock, believes that our republic is at a termination point and we are now in decline. And he says that decline will become increasingly apparent and rapid. The almost endless ramifications of Watergate, with corruption reaching into the highest echelons of government, even into the White House itself, serves to demonstrate that our morals have gone soggy and that black and white have blended into a kind of a ghastly general gray. It's interesting to me now that two wrongs can make a right. If someone steals the information on the Pentagon Papers, and then there are those who steal the information to convict. The two wrongs make a right, and the court goes in favor of dismissal. The old standards of Christian decency are being openly flaunted. The solid points of moral reference, the absolutes, are being erased. And this is increasingly an era of moral confusion that portends an inevitable chaos. No human invention, no human institution, not all the laws of the legislature, all the devices of our scientists, all the dreams of our theorists combined can direct the ultimate course of human history toward happiness or misery to the extent of the home. Home 
is what shapes our future. And the breakdown of the home is obvious. We are witnessing the crumbling of the basic institution of Western civilization and the spawning of a myriad of problems that defy solution. It is interesting that even men who are unmoved by the Christian code of purity and decency and character are feverishly striving for some kind of corrective remedy. They know that the malady of our American home life has taken a turn for the worst in spite of a corps of domestic specialists who seek to diagnose and cure. History teaches us that when the homes of society change, the nation changes, and the Christian especially knows that the roots of the home as an institution are deeply embedded in Christian ethics and Christian revelation. Lacey Hall cites 11 major changes which are dramatically remolding the American family. I think we should all be aware of them. First, mobility. Families are on the move. This mobility is changing the roots of home. One-third of all the families with husbands under 35 move every year. This often leads, obviously, to instability and insecurity. Secondly is urbanization. In 1850, 65% of the American people were farmers. In 1960, 14%. Today, approximately 10%. Meanwhile, the urban areas are mushrooming until we see what is commonly called as the megapolis. And before the end of the present decade, it can be predicted that between 85 and 95% of the population of our nation will live in great, burgeoning, urban, uh, metropolitan centers. Interestingly, urban areas are filled with people who have tried to lose their identity, eventually, however, becoming increasingly miserable. In urban situations, especially in the sprawl of large megapolis, people do not know each other. Society becomes depersonalized, and this is undoubtedly causing an inevitable increase in crime and suicide. Even in a community like our own, many of us do not know our neighbors. Thirdly, working mothers. Nearly half of all wives in their early 20s and more than 40% of these in their late 20s are now employed. Sheldon and Eleanor T. Gluick, experts in the field of juvenile delinquency, tell us that one of the principal causes of delinquency is working mothers, leaving children unattended, depriving children of constant guidance and a sense of security that they desperately need from their mothers in their earlier years. Dr. Ernest Vanden Haag, a noted New York psychoanalyst, says that children under the age of three should neither be placed in daycare centers nor be left with a series of babysitters. Dr. Haig says the important thing is constant affection, and when you have a frequently changing cast taking care of a young child, He is unable to form the emotional bonds that a youngster needs, and the child subliminally and increasingly feels abandoned. 
Parents should be willing to sacrifice some material status for the sake of children. And the empty house is indeed one of the principal causes of delinquency. It's interesting that even animals become insecure and neurotic without territorial occupation. Number four, family size. In 1900, United States families averaged 5.2 children. In 1953.5, now very close to two children or less. And of course, we all know population control demands limited families for survival, and I'll be saying more about that in a moment. Children also have become, in our inflated economy, a substantial financial burden from their birth till the time they leave home. In 1972, the President's Commission on Population Growth and the American Future reported that to give birth to a baby and to raise and put a child through college cost an average of between forty and $50,000. In the smaller families, there is also much more focus on me and mine. This can breed, and often does, an inordinate selfishness. Number five is sexual promiscuity. The new morality, situation ethics, the contraceptive pill, legalized abortion have brought a change in family life that is devastating. If free love and a host of unspeakable perversions are championed in the name of freedom and education, if Myriads of American youth continue to see the standards of the jungles constantly paraded before their eyes as they see, for example, before their 18 years of age, 28,000 hours of television. If the new psychological religion makes a virtue of illicit sex, removing all sin from private vice and casts suspicion on all high aspirations of the mind and the spirit, the devastation will become fantastic, and we must look to the future with unsurpassed concern. Marriage is in a process of degradation where it will have no sanctity. And when that happens, what we know as the home will be gone with all of its values forever. The beautiful and unique relationship that God intended for a man and a woman in which can be found ultimate happiness is sacrificed to the exact level of the barnyard. The emotional tragedy of children who grow up in such confusion and chaos is unimaginable. Number six, early marriage. Between 30 and 40 percent of all weddings are teenage marriages, most married to get away from home. The teenager whose home is unhappy hopes to find in marriage that which was lacking in his own home. But too often he does not have or she does not have the emotional maturity for marriage. Oh, how many times in my study I have heard in counseling those sad words, I wish I had never gotten married. As a result, 37% of these teenagers are divorced within the very first year. Number seven, divorce. We have the highest div divorce rate in the world. In other words, we are 30% higher than our nearest rival. In 1971, 768,000 couples were divorced as compared with 393,000 in 1960. 
In 1921, out of every seven marriages wound up in the divorce court. In 1941, out of six. In 1961, out of four. In 1972, latest available statistics, one out of three. And it is estimated that 20% of those married today would get a divorce if they could or if their church would allow it. And then we have what I call the emotional divorce. Those living in the same house, putting up a front, but lacking the real involvement which should be a part of any acceptable and beautiful marriage. In this home, it is the children who pay the greatest price, for they have tuned in to what is really going on. I have counseled some of these young people. I've had them sob in my study and say, my parents don't know that I don't know. They don't love each other. But, Dr. Jack, I do know they hate each other. No wonder youth today are confused as to what the real values are. They see so much inconsistency, hypocrisy in their parents. Schooling. In 1940, 35% of high school graduates went to college. Today it's closer to between 60 and 70%. Today's students are generally far ahead of where their parents were at that age, and they are asking college-age questions, even at the high school, sometimes the grammar school level. And certainly evangelical churches should gear to this stepped-up educational pace, and that's the kind of a pulpit we ought to have in our churches. Number nine, senior citizens. Greater longevity has expanded the number of senior citizens. But often the tragedy is, and it is all too frequent, they live their lives in isolation from their families in a world of their own that grows increasingly barren and empty. Our culture, almost unlike any other in this world, has lost its respect for age. Leisure. Because of the shorter work week, working day, labor-saving appliances, earlier retirement and other factors, many families today are faced with the use of greater leisure time. And many are handling it very poorly. Number 11, changing roles. Many of the previously mentioned changes point up to the confusion existing as to the proper role of the man or the woman, the husband or the wife. When you repudiate the structure of the family as presented in the scriptures, you are confused. But scripture makes it clear what those roles ought to be when each member of the family assumes their special responsibility. And in that sense, there is harmony and happiness. And where there is confusion with respect to these roles, there can only be discord and misery. Dr. George Mercer, Associate Professor of Clinical Obstetrics and Gynecology at the USC School of Medicine, told a meeting of the California Medical Association, education has certainly not taught the way toward marital maturity. It seems that the higher the educational level, the more conflicts and tensions are present. Lately, it seems that more marriages are unhappy and in jeopardy than ever before. The happily married couple seems to be an oddity. Interestingly, he adds, most of these couples do not need counseling by psychiatrists nor marriage counselors. They can probably solve their own problems by learning to communicate. 
Beyond these changes, there are more profound changes that are already underway, and time will not permit me to explore these as I ought. We are, as we all know, in the midst of a biological revolution. Babies may owe their existence, for example, to long-dead fathers or especially chosen fathers. Women may no longer need to procreate with men in order to have children. Indeed, individuals can be tailor-made to certain specifications by genetic controls and the use of frozen sperm and ova. Dr. E.S.E. Hafitz, the experimental biologist for Wayne State University, asked a colleague in Germany to send him a hundred head of prize sheep. The entire hundred head was mailed in a box that could be carried in one hand. In the box was a live female rabbit with 100 potential sheep. All of them embryos, a few days old, naturally they nestled comfortably in the womb of the rabbit. Upon arrival, each embryo was implanted in a ewe and born a few months later, while the real mother grazed contentedly in Germany. Dr. Hafus says, there is no reason why techniques of artificial ovulation could not work just as well on human beings. Increasingly, we will hear of sperm and ova banks for only men and women with superior qualifications. Dr. Frank J. Aid, M.D., looking to the year 2000, sees a new religio-scientism springing up. Humanism and science will have replaced God. He warns humanism has already replaced God in education. And increasingly, the quality of life will be more important than the sanctity of life. And by the way, that's very frightening if you think about it. Oh, let me hasten to say the first century apostles brought the living Christ into the center of their homes. The more determined the effort to wipe out the new faith, the sharper the sword of persecution, the stronger became the church, the wider its boundaries the more penetrating and powerful its testimony and its influence. And remember the first institution that God ever established after he created man and woman was the home. Before the church, before the school, before the government was the home. We have laid much emphasis, and rightly so, on the importance of Christian education in building the church and in extending her outreach, and rightly so. But a Christian home is where vital Christian education really begins. That's the matrix out of which true education really flows in its effect upon character and where, of course, it is the most effective. The living Christ should be the thrilling center of every home. If there is to be faithfulness between husband and wife, if there is to be a loving, beautiful, constructive influence for children, if there is to be domestic harmony and divine solutions for family problems, then the conscious presence of Jesus Christ must come first into our hearts and then into our homes. He should be the unseen guest, the silent listener to every conversation, the guide in every perplexity and the final court of appeal in every decision. 
No home should ever be started without Jesus Christ. And as you know, Christian marriage in the Christian home is unique. There is nothing like it in the world. The clear admonition of the scripture in 2 Corinthians 6.14 is be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. More contention, strife, heartache, heartbreak, havoc, hell have come to the home because of disobedience on this point than any other. With unbroken zeal, the apostles went from house to house because they saw the importance of winning the whole family to Jesus Christ. No church will ever rise any higher than the testimony it has in its homes, the homes that make up its constituency. The early apostles were not concerned with the latest psychological theory on the raising of children. Their Savior's love was so inexhaustible, his mercy so magnificent, his blessing so immeasurable, they found time for nothing else. They lived with a singleness of purpose to win every member of that family to the knowledge of the living Christ and the beauty of Christian character and ethics to the peace of his presence and the purpose of his will. They began with a basic cell, the home unit. They knew that Christianity would survive if it transformed homes, and it did. Again, we read, they cease not to preach and teach Jesus Christ by example and by a methodical instruction. They worked for a family-rooted faith by which believers could defend the Lord Jesus Christ and confidently exult, I know whom I have believed Unfortunately, one reason why some Christian homes do not produce strong Christian young people is that they are not truly Christian. The name of Christ is honored in word, but not in deed. Unhappy family relations make plain to children that Christ is not real. And as a result, many children come to a place where they mock the holy name. Unfortunately, out of so-called Christian homes have come children who have grown up so permanently warped and deformed and hardened and spiritually brutalized. Harsh legalism and inconsistency have turned these young people away from Jesus Christ and his blood-bought church. Some young people identify the church with a terrible tyranny, a forced, unreasonable, unnatural piety. It seems cruel to say such a thing, but it's time to say it because it's true. And then, too, sometimes those who are responsible for a home are too busy to give attention to proper child development and care, especially in the matters that concern the soul. And they never establish with the child a correct perspective, nor do they ever establish a meaningful rapport. And so the child doesn't have a real understanding of a relationship with Christ because they know nothing about a relationship with the parent. Do you know that the child's first ideas of God, for example, are usually projections of their father's image? It's interesting that psychologists tell us, due to extensive study, that most atheists had a very damaged, poor father image. The true Christian home is where Jesus Christ is given his rightful place and where each member in the family works together in divine harmony according to God's mind and purpose and where the love of Christ is known and shown and shed abroad in every heart and is indeed the ruling element. Children soon discover what our real priorities are 
They notice what excites us. They can see the flash in our eye when it comes to going fishing or playing golf or something we like to do. And then the other attitude that often is visible when we go to church. They make an immediate evaluation of what really matters. Also, they listen to your conversations. And oh, how I warn parents about what they say about the Church of Jesus Christ in all of its weaknesses before their children. I'm thinking of an incident of a young man who was in deep trouble. And his father came to see me, and I never had seen this big, strong man sob before in my life. But he sat in my study and sobbed through his tears and said, Dr. MacArthur, my boy is in deep trouble, and he needs you more than he needs anyone in this world. But you're the one person that can't help him. And I said, why? He said, because we have criticized the church and you so severely before our son that one day he said, he stood up and said, if that's all Jesus Christ and the church means to you, it doesn't mean anything to me anymore, and I've gone to church for the last time, and I want you to know it. How we regret our conversations. A Christian home should simulate the atmosphere of heaven. If children are to be emotionally secure and adequate, they must have love and discipline and by the way, in equal amounts. One reason I'm directing my message today toward the family as a whole and not merely to the exaltation of the place of mother, whom I am confident has the greatest influence upon a child and how grateful I am to have my own mother with us, especially in the earlier years, is because I believe the Word of God teaches that a father's obligation is grave and great and he, as the head of the family, is most responsible for seeing to it that that home is truly Christ-centered and Christ-exalting. Children notice whether or not you tie to the church of Jesus Christ. They find out where your priorities are. Much is being said and written today about the tragedy of the passive father who assumes no responsibility and no authority. This is the characteristic of our permissive society. William Holm wrote, There are always those who like the title of authority, but not the responsibility with its tensions and demands. Our ulcer-ridden society emphasizes how frustrating these tensions can be. The fact that men die an average of five years earlier than women. By the way, the women's libs should remember that. Their lives are going to be shorter now mirrors the pressures of our society and the pressure that's placed upon the man. This may be one reason why he may avoid assuming his responsibility in the home. His vocational pressures may be preempting most of his energy, but despite this, he is called to be the head, the loving head. Those who see an unjust demand on the woman in submitting to her husband's headship should contemplate what it means for the husband to love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Our homes, our families need Jesus Christ. The repudiation of the ethical standards of the word of God and the rejection of our Lord Jesus Christ as the Savior and the Lord of life will wreck, ravage, and ruin the American family and destroy the American home more thoroughly than war and bombs. No wonder youth today is confused in the matter of moral absolutes. 
The American public makes heroes out of people whose personal lives are rotten with perversion and young people are tragically confused by the lecherous behavior of those who are held up as national idols. Satan is putting forth every effort to effectively poison and pollute the life stream of our nation by contaminating the homes and the hearts of our young people. 30 million young people in the United States grow up without any religious instruction of any kind whatsoever. There are other millions who are growing up in so-called Christian homes, but which are in reality a denial of that name because the way the people live in those homes denies the validity of their testimony. Shortly before his death, the late Dr. Walter Meyer listed the seven deadly sins of the American home. I think they still are the seven deadly sins. Number one, incontinence and promiscuity before marriage. Barnyard philosophies and psychologies that promote barnyard morality. These young people are thrown into a terrible confusion. And often, whatever happiness they might have had is spoiled before they ever know the joy of connubial bliss. Our young people need to be reinforced in guarding the most precious human possession they have, their purity, their integrity, their honor, their chastity. This is the responsibility of the Christian home. Number two, the deadly sin of unfaithfulness after marriage. This, of course, is becoming a a kind of a joke in American society. We hear all about the wife swappers and the swingers, The film and the television industry dip their pen all too often in pus instead of ink. Prime time on television is devoted to innuendo, obscenity, and a consistent fare of moral degradation. Christian ethics guard the sacredness and the sanctity and the happiness of the home and keep love pure and undefiled. Three, the deadly sin of divorce. Christian marriages are until death us do part. Whom God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. I must hurry. Number four, the deadly sin of avoidance of responsible parenthood and the actual hatred of children. Oscar Fute says, in having children, man and woman come to a point of fulfillment. For that purpose, God made them male and female. In the birth of their children, their marriage comes to a high point of achievement, not only in the eyes of God, but also in the eyes of man. How true. Parenthood is part of the full and abundant life. It holds a unique fulfillment for those who are so privileged. David May says that nothing cements the unity of man and wife like the solemn wonder of that exalted moment when they stand together hand in hand looking down upon their sleeping child. Parents of some well-adjusted children are quoted as saying, Babies we have found fill the heart with love which more than compensates for what they take from the wallet. We'd rather be parents than anything else on earth. You see, a child becomes the focal point of the love of both father and mother. Robert Dodds has beautifully expressed this. He says, your child is the visible embodiment of your union of one flesh. Your baby is the two of you individually bound together in a new and unique person. 
And this child is the creation of your common love, the living summary of your past union, and the projection into the future of all your loving hopes. God has purposed parenthood as a vital part of abundant Christian living for married couples. Five, the deadly sin of drunkenness and cruelty. We have become the drunkest nation on planet Earth. Alcohol makes the largest contribution to the wholesale slaughter on our highways. 50% of all the highway deaths are due to someone driving under the influence of alcohol. We spend $16 billion a year for liquor. We have 8 million known alcoholics. Number six, the deadly sin of quarrel and strife. The dividing of a house against itself, the sullen opposition between husband and wife who ought to live together in closest devotion. The changing of affection to anger, of love to hatred, of harmony to hellish discord. Christian homes are bound by the cord of Christ's love and husbands and wives express emotional maturity. They are grown up, not infantile. Often I see characteristics of infantilism in people in meetings, and I wonder how they behave in their homes. The basic characteristic of immaturity, of course, is irascible selfishness. Number seven, the deadly sin of friction and enmity between parents and children, sons and daughters selfishly forgetting, deserting, despising those who gave them life and sustained them. Fathers and mothers so completely wrapped up in their own selfish interests that their children are neglected and deprived of the essentials of parental companionship and love. This accounts, of course, in a large measure for our sick, sad dropouts, our epidemic of hallucinogenic drug users, our young people who identify with strange subcultures, those who are retreating from the complexities of a 20th century mechanical technological society. These young people become problems to society, potential criminals, and of course, spiritual derelicts. These and many others, but these seven have invaded these sins, the American home. And I have reiterated them, not primarily because they evoke bodily suffering and mental misery, constituting a constant menace to good government and national welfare, but especially because these family failings, often associated with the rejection of our Lord Jesus Christ, bring an inevitable judgment. The wages of all sin, domestic sin, not accepted, is death. Separation from God. The wife of Billy Graham, Ruth Graham, said... If children have the background of a godly, happy home and the unshakable faith that the Bible indeed is the word of God, they will have a foundation that the forces of hell cannot shake. Oh, listen, the supreme necessity of the American home of your home, if it's to be a happy home, is a firm faith in Jesus Christ and an exaltation of Christ to the throne of authority. Don't send your children to Bible school and church. You take them there. It's the only institution our Lord Jesus Christ ever founded apart from them. Show them what your true priorities and values in life are because the greatest heritage that you can ever give that wonderful son and that daughter is a Christian home. 
The man is the head of the home, and he must be the one to lead the family in the sacred privilege of teaching and proclaiming Christ to the members of the family. Some men, however, are not spiritual enough and therefore not mature enough to be the true head of the family and therefore should not even attempt to be. Some do not show love and therefore they have no right to exercise authority. Some have lost the respect of the family and so they have no authority. The real unity of married life is manifested in the blending of authority and affection, law and love. Now, word to you, mothers, no nation ever rises higher than the fountainhead of its mother's characters. A mother is literally the beating heart of the home. The fact that in America today our wives and mothers are not called cows as they are in the Muslim world is not due to education. For some of those who would degrade womanhood by proposals of loose family ties and free love have been men and women of university training. The fact that womanhood has been placed on the pedestal which it now occupies is not due to modern thought, nor does it come from American wealth and progress, for in some of our wealthier homes you will find women regarded as pampered playthings, welcome as long as their beauty and attractiveness serve the gratification of lust, but discarded and exchanged before collusive divorce courts when their glamour fails. Every blessing that motherhood today enjoys comes from Jesus Christ. Mother, it's your responsibility to bring up your sons and daughters in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Lead them closer to Jesus Christ. Teach them the word of God. Become the messenger of God to your own dear ones. Take as an example Lois and Eunice, Timothy's mother and grandmother, who taught the illustrious young Timothy the gospel truth in his early youth and help pave the way for his glory, glorious career in the service of Jesus Christ. Learn of Lydia, who opened her whole house to the preaching of the word of God. Understand that God has given to you a very special endowment so that your mother's love will help you to put first things first. See that the family finds time for worship and that the little ones learn the word of God, that your household never forgets to thank God for his blessings. Start and close every day by invoking his divine protection. Let me say one final word in this closing minute to you young men and women who have not yet formed your home. May God help you now to plan your life with Jesus Christ, your future home with Jesus Christ. Resolve that your life partner will be a disciple of this matchless Christ who can worship with you in the same faith. Plan your married life with Christ, for Christ, in Christ. Come then what may, as the dark clouds gather on the unformed horizon of the unknown tomorrow, we can all have peace in our hearts and thank God in our homes. If fathers and mothers together with sons and daughters looking only to Jesus declare God helping us in prosperity and adversity, in peace or want, in health or sickness, we will not cease to teach and preach Jesus Christ and determine that our homes shall be homes of faith and our first loyalty will be to Jesus Christ and to his church. Our loving Lord, we thank Thee for these moments when we have given consideration to our responsibility as parents and to the uniqueness 
the beauty, the influence, the unending influence of the Christian home. And now while our heads are bowed and our eyes are